0: please turn with me to James chapter
1: 1, verses 5 through 8. James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. We find ourselves this morning in part 2 of a two-part series entitled The Unnecessary Search for Wisdom. Follow along as I read these verses, which we started last week. James 1, 5 through 8.
0: James writes, but if any
1: of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways." Again, our series is called The Unnecessary Search for Wisdom. Unnecessary simply because this passage tells us that all we need to do as believers is to ask God for wisdom. We don't need to search for it. We don't need to find it in the world. We don't need to go to self-help gurus or look at ancient philosophical texts. We just need to ask. And God is happy to give it because His desire is for us to use the knowledge that we have to honor Him, and that takes wisdom. And this morning we will focus on verses 6 through 8, which provide a caveat of sorts to verse 5. Specifically, it speaks of the scenario in which God will not answer a particular believer's request for wisdom. But before we get to the caveat, let's review what we learned in verse 5 from last week because we really need to learn about the promise before we look at the limitations to that promise. And so in verse 5, we saw, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. And this is in the context, of course, of the believer's life. This is in the more immediate context of the original audience of this letter entitled James to people who were undergoing severe persecution. And so specifically, he is saying, in that persecution, which for many of these converted Jews, Jews who converted to Christianity, also resulted in poverty. They're heavily persecuted. Martyrdom was not out of the question. Uh, They were robbed of their jobs. They could not get good jobs because of what was going on. There was no human resources back then that would protect their religious rights in the workplace. And so a lot of them were poor. Not Bay Area poor, but poor, poor, poor as we just saw up on the screen, not knowing where to eat, dying because you couldn't get health care that is simple and available to the rest of the world. This kind of poverty. But of course, we understand that James broadens it to all believers asking for wisdom in any and all situations. And so let's review. Last week, we began by defining wisdom by contrasting it with knowledge. Now, the reason being that the two are often confused. They are definitely connected, but they are distinct from one another. Wisdom builds from knowledge, but they are different. Quite simply, knowledge is knowing things. It is comprehending and perceiving facts. In other words, it is reading the Bible for the believer. It is listening to sermons and reading books so that you understand what the Bible says. That's just knowledge. You can memorize the, the Scriptures from cover to cover and not have a drop of wisdom. That's all knowledge. Wisdom is taking that knowledge, taking the Bible in our illustration, and applying it in a way that is both practical and useful ultimately to God's glory. So for example, you can memorize a verse, but does it really tell you how to apply it in your specific conversation as you apply for a new job? That's where wisdom comes in, where you take biblical principles, the knowledge, and ask God for wisdom and then know how to apply it to your specific life circumstances, because as you know, it's good and necessary, but practically speaking, not enough to say, well, I'm going to go into that mist of the battlefield and just know that I am to love my neighbor as myself. Well, what does that mean? Does it mean that you don't fight back? Does it mean you turn the other cheek? Does it mean you give more, take more? What does it mean in your particular context? And we need wisdom. That's wisdom. in the context of Christian life, we understand that the wisdom that we're talking about, that James is talking about, is godly wisdom. It's not worldly wisdom. It's not just wisdom in, in how to uh, in, interpret a certain manual into the workplace. It is for the purpose of godliness. It is taking your knowledge of the Scriptures and applying them to your Christian life. It is the practical application of the commands of Scripture such that you are honoring God through biblical obedience. The challenge of this is that we all need more wisdom. The beauty of this is that all you need to acquire more wisdom, again, is to just ask. To pray to God and ask for wisdom. Not to ask for more knowledge. The knowledge you need is already there. The canon of Scripture, the Bible, the Word of God is completed. You don't need any more knowledge for spiritual living than what is contained in the Scriptures. You do need more wisdom. See, there's a big problem when people think they need more knowledge. And hence we get people who are easily deceived by the shysters on television claiming that they are pastors. Because they think, I need more knowledge and that guy can give it to me. I need more knowledge and this person can give it to me. And so the guy says, Gladly I will give you more knowledge. But if you're adding to the Scriptures, you know what the Bible says about that. May those people be condemned. The Word of God, as we understand it as the Scriptures, the Bible is complete. We are warned very seriously not to add to it. We're not to take away from it either. Now to be sure, To get more knowledge does take work. You do need to open your Bibles. You do need to read it. You need to study it. You need to memorize it. You need to carve out time to do these things. Now, though applying this knowledge wisely does take work as well, ultimately the wisdom comes from God. Now, just like with knowledge, just receiving wisdom doesn't change anything. You have to act upon it. You have to do something about it. You have to apply it. You have to understand, first and foremost, that God desires are good, the height of which is godliness, the height of which is a thriving relationship with Him. You say, wait a minute, how are there two heights? Because those are the same thing. Godliness, Christ likeness, is a healthy relationship with your God, with your Lord, with your Savior. And so he helps with that, not only by providing knowledge through the Bible as well as the church around us, uh, whether through my sermons or interactions with one another or the, the wider church and where you can read various books and listen to sermons online, whatever it may be. Those all help us understand the facts, gain more knowledge, understand his word. But God also gives us the wisdom we need to understand how to apply those words to our lives. You ever heard a sermon and said, Oh yeah, now I get it. I need to go to uh, my, my mean boss and do such and such. Was a mean boss ever mentioned in that sermon? No. But what happened is you took that knowledge and God gave you wisdom and how to apply it in your difficult situation. Now, although a seemingly obvious point, we also saw that we are to ask God for wisdom. The point there was not that, was that rather, we are not to seek out our desire or desire the wisdom of the world. We should not seek out or desire the wisdom of the world. We are to desire the wisdom of God. So in other words, not what we call conventional wisdom, not what we call worldly wisdom, not the materialistic wisdom of society, not the wisdom that will make our lives richer and fuller and more comfortable by the world standards, but God's wisdom. We are to ask of God for His wisdom. Let me give you an example. We can safely assume that those Christian Jews that were members of the dispersion, the Diaspora, obeyed James and prayed for wisdom with faith, without doubting, without wavering. We can thus safely assume that God gave them wisdom. And yet history shows that after gaining that wisdom, they were still persecuted, they were still in poverty, And many of them were martyred, killed for their faith. In other words, wisdom helps us to live our lives, even in difficulty, in a way that honors God. It does not promise to take away those difficulties. But we will be filled with joy. Remember, this is right on the heels of consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. This is part of finding joy in trials because we have the wisdom of God to know how to approach it properly. And what I'm contrasting is the wisdom of the world. The wisdom of the world in that day, because it was allowed, would say, you need to kill those who are trying to kill you. Band together, get your swords Turn your plowshares into swords and kill. Start a war. Gossip, slander, attack. Don't pray for them. Hurt them back. Go and steal. Get the money. Get out of poverty. That's worldly wisdom. It's not godly wisdom. Now this request of God does come with a guarantee. And at the end of verse 5, he promises that we will get the wisdom we ask for. And the reason we can rest assured that this promise will be, be fulfilled, as we saw last week, is because of the character of God. The character of God is reflected in how James describes how he gives. He says, generously and without reproach. This is no surprise. This is no surprise to us when James says he will give us in this manner. We know he is a loving, gracious, forgiving, generous God. He will give without conditions. He will not make us feel bad for not asking sooner or not having the wisdom in and of ourselves. He will not rebuke. He will not reprimand. He desires us to have this wisdom because he desires a strong and healthy relationship with us. And with all that being said, And in regards to prayer in general, and our view of God in general, we know that God is not some sort of mystical, heavenly ATM machine that gives us whatever we want, whenever we want. The assumption is that the wisdom we are asking for is for the sake of His glory through the bolstering of our spiritual walk and the building up of the church. Thus, asking for God, and this is so important, asking God for wisdom presupposes a desire for those goals to be fulfilled. In other words, if you're coming to God for wisdom, the assumption is you're asking God for wisdom because you desire holiness, you desire to build up the church. Because all of this ultimately centers around God and faithfulness to Him. And so James adds several verses to verse 5 to explain when and why God would, in fact, deny your request for wisdom. And the reason is quite simple. But James elaborates on the simplicity so that we as believers understand what true faith is and how we are to view and approach God. And so as we move on to verses 6 through 8 of James chapter 1, we will see four factors in God's rejection of the request for wisdom. Four factors in God's rejection of the request for wisdom. And as we go through all of these, You need to understand that this is not some blacklisted stamp on your passport that you will never again enter that country. This can change. This can be a one-time thing. He can reject your request, and if you change your heart, He will grant your request. This is the wonderful God that we serve. But going into our text, the first factor in God's rejection of the request for wisdom is the fitting confidence, the fitting confidence. Again, in verse 6, just the first half, James writes, but, contrasting what he just said about the promise of of granting wisdom, but he must ask in faith without any doubting. This is really the basic premise of the whole passage. Ask in faith, do not doubt. Now faith here is faith in God. It's not referring to saving faith. Uh, which it can refer to elsewhere in the Scriptures. The context will always tell us. James is here referring to the practical outworking of saving faith in prayer. In other words, it is after salvation, as Christians, having an ongoing confidence that God indeed hears your prayer and He is able to answer it. And this goes back to believing what the Bible says about His character. For us, also believing what James has just said about God's faithfulness to give wisdom. If you have a solid foundation of comprehending and believing in the character of God as presented in the Scriptures, you really have no choice but to have faith in what the Bible says about Him. That He can do it, that He hears it. There's no special way to pray. He hears it all. And he hears all the millions of prayers going up to him at all times, all at the same time. He hears it. He can answer them. The flip side of faith, this kind of faith, as James tells us here, is doubt. James says, we must ask in faith without any doubting. The word doubt, the word translated doubt here in the original Greek of the New Testament, means to separate to divide, to differentiate. What that means in our modern understanding of doubting is ideas that you are divided or wavering in your mind. You're not sure. You think it might be true, but you're wavering. Doubt. You're debating. You're disputing with yourself. And we see how this can applied directly in our faith or lack of faith in God. You know something about God, but you think, well, maybe my situation's too big. Maybe this is not something that God can handle. Maybe he doesn't hear me because of what I did last night. You're wavering between what you think and what you know to be true about God. And so really, the the dispute, when we're talking about doubting as the the contrast or opposite of faith, on the one hand, you believe in the character of God, but on the other hand, you doubt whether he will actually give you that wisdom. You doubt if he actually can give you wisdom for that particular situation. In Romans chapter 4, when describing Abraham's faith that was reckoned to him as righteousness, Paul says in verse 20, Romans 4, that Abraham, quote, did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. And that word waver there is the same Greek word for doubting in our verse in James. Abraham did not doubt. He did not waver in unbelief, but rather the opposite happened, naturally. He grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. Now, when it comes to asking of God, we are to do so with confidence in Him. Particularly when asking for wisdom, we can ask confidently because of what James has just said about his character and about God's promise to give us that wisdom. Now, this brings us to the two nuances of doubt that James is referring to. In our faith... We believe that God is sufficient to meet our needs. In our faith, we are to ask with simplicity and no ulterior motives. And when we don't do this, we are doubting. I don't know if you caught it, but I mentioned two different nuances there. The first is not having a truly genuine trust in God's character, the promises of His Word, His holy purposes... But the second part of doubt is that we may trust in those things about Him, but when push comes to shove, we don't actually truly want God's character, promises, or holy purposes. We don't want that wisdom. We're wavering, not in our confidence in Him, but we're wavering as to whether we truly want to do things God's way. Because sometimes God's way takes a lot of sacrifice. Sometimes God's way takes hurt. Or sometimes God's way means a continuation of the trial rather than seeking vengeance and the trial ends. And so we doubt. Either just wholesale doubting of God's character and promises or we doubt whether we really want to live according to His word and his subsequent wisdom. And when we doubt in either of these ways, we hinder prayer. Not because God is unable, not because he doesn't hear, not that our sin some, somehow creates some sort of spiritual blockage that our prayers don't go to him and he actually doesn't hear them. That's impossible. Doubt hinders prayer. And listen, Christian, I'm choosing my words carefully, not because God is unable, because at that very moment, Christian, you are an agnostic. You're not sure. You're saved. You believe in God. You know he exists. You know you're saved. But in that moment, as the temptations of the world come to you, in that present moment, you're an agnostic. You're not sure if you really want to do this. You're not sure if you really want to live the way you are created and then saved to live. You're questioning the whole thing, the whole system. When we ask... We are to ask in the same way that God gives, purely and confidently. And like the gifted preacher that he is, James continues by illustrating this point, which explains what this kind of doubter is like and leads us to our second point, our second factor in God's rejection of the request for wisdom, the fluctuating conviction. The fluctuating conviction. Look at the rest of verse 6. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. You can't fully appreciate this illustration if you've only stood on a beach or on a boat that is docked. Uh, this is the, the wind and the waves that terrify people. This is the picture of the boat that you see from up above and you say, what are all those little things on the side? Those are all the sailors vomiting their guts out. The picture James presents is not of a docked ship gently or even violently bobbing with the tides. It's still docked. This is a picture of a ship in the middle of the sea that, that is totally and completely at the mercy of whatever comes its way. The waves are so big. The sails, the rudder, the propeller, the engine don't make a lick of difference. Large or small, violent or calm, this way or that, whatever the wind and the waves do, that's where the boat goes. In other words, this is simply the picture of a boat... That is not anchored. The Christian who doubts is like this boat. What is the anchor? It's hope. But more specifically, hope in God. Hebrews 6.19 This hope we have as an anchor of the soul. A hope both sure and steadfast. It's Hebrews 6.19 So let's go back to the illustration. The one who prays to God with doubt lacks consistency, he lacks purpose. Falling prey to the shifting winds of circumstance and emotion, his desire drives him to seek wisdom from God one day and then wisdom from the world the next. Going back to the literal definition of doubt, this individual is divided when it comes to what he wants. I was at a soccer game yesterday for my youngest, park filled with about six different games, 12 teams of children, boys and girls, aged five, six, and seven. No goalies, no positions, no really boundaries. They just all just huddle around the ball and just kick, 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 kick. But they do have practices, and so they know enough that sometimes the ball can get kicked very far and hard. And man, these kids so cute, right? They're running with all this confidence, some of them bobbling, whatever. And then they get to the ball, and they lift their arms, and they turn away in fear. That's our doubt. Yes, God's way, going to ask for wisdom, going to deal with this in a way that honors God, and then when God gives you wisdom, I don't know if I want to do that. And with that mindset, the doubter is as unpredictable and unsteady as the boat tossed to and fro by turbulent seas. I mean, you see that kid running. You're like, he's going to score a goal and then he gets to the ball and he takes a step back. You hear someone sharing, say, man, that guy's got it. He is going to do the right thing. He's going to honor God. And then he's in that situation. He's like, not sure if I want to do this. The picture of doubt applies not just to prayer for wisdom, but any and all prayer. Any prayer from the lips of the child of God must resound with confidence and character. In the character of God, that is. Two levels here. On the level of faith, we doubt because we're not confident in God. On the level of works, we waver because we're not confident that we fully want to follow God's wisdom in that particular area. Maybe everything else, just not in that relationship, not in that sacrifice, not on that day. So let's talk about these two levels, about the doubting of faith. Fundamentally, it's a doubt of God's ability or desire to answer your prayer. You think, well, I I don't know. know. I know God is sovereign. I know He can do all things, but I don't know if He can really get me out of this one. This is a bad one. And sometimes it's not so much the direct character of God that we doubt, but indirectly doubting His character by thinking you are not good enough. If you think that you're too sinful for God to answer your prayers, then you're not only questioning his character, you're not only doubting his promise to answer prayers in a wor- way that works all things together for the good of those who love him. But if you think as a Christian you're not good enough for God to answer your prayer, you are doubting the gospel. What do you mean by that? See, the gospel doesn't just tell you how to be saved. As a believer, it assures you that you are still saved. And the very essence of salvation means that despite your wretchedness, despite your not being good enough, God cleansed you of all guilt and clothed you in His righteousness and adopted you as a son of God. When you think that your sin has made you not good enough for God to bless you, then you are doubting the totality of salvation purchased on the cross. You are doubting the gospel. It is true as we see in this passage, that there are times, not that God won't answer your prayer, but that His answer will be no because of your sin, because of your lack of confidence in Him, because of His discipline of those whom He loves. But when you start thinking that all of a sudden God is outside of your life because of your sin, you've missed the whole point. You've missed the whole point. You can think of it this way. If you were not too sinful to be saved as an enemy of God, how is it possible that you're too sinful to be granted the wisdom of a child of God? And I don't know where the doubt comes from, but it's certainly not the anchor of gospel-centered hope but some sort of wave that is tossing your soul here and there. That's the doubting on the level of faith. I also mentioned doubting on the level of works, that is, works that are a result of faith. This is a practical denial of God's plan for you that is pursued through His wisdom. A denial because we have desires and wishes that must ignore the wisdom and ways of God in order to achieve those desires. So the surf of the sea in this instance would be the allures, the temptations of the world. Often referred to as the pressures of the world, but let's be honest. More often than not, we pursue our selfish desires not because of some undeniable pressure of the world, but because we want it. Because we want to pursue it. Pressure indicates something that is unavoidable, which would then contradict Romans 12, which gives us a choice. I'd actually like you to turn there, Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2. If you are currently on some sort of plan to find verses to memorize, this is one of the key passages throughout church history. That has been memorized because of how powerful and important it is in describing the Christian life. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. He says, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. And here he's taking that picture of Old Testament sacrifice that were killed for the Lord, now post-cross. We are the sacrifices. We are not to kill ourselves. We are to be living sacrifices, holy sacrifices, back in the text. Acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Verse 2, and do not be conformed to this world, squeezed into the mold of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. You have a choice. Choose the world and it inevitably will squeeze you, make you more like it. We've all seen this in our own lives in various areas. Or choose to seek God and have His Holy Spirit renew our minds, transform us as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in us. And the flow of logic in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2 is similar to what we're seeing in James you must have a desire to worship, to offer yourselves as this living sacrifice by presenting yourselves as such acceptable to God, which in turn leads, to, leads you to pursue the transformation by the renewing of your mind rather than conforming to the ways of the world. And back in James, a key way to do this is to pray for wisdom. To pray For wisdom from God with faith, which ultimately results in fulfilling the will of God. When we are doubting, it is because we are not anchored to the rock. And as our rock, God's ways and will are immovable. The culture, however, is constantly shifting, which means your own personal worldly desires will also be constantly shifting especially if you're into the latest fashion and the latest trends, that's going to change as soon as one well-known actor or model decides to wear something, and that's how it just comes down through society and then eventually spreads to other countries. That's how it works. Why in the world are some words that are very descriptive and accurate no longer used because they're not politically correct because someone just said, I don't like that word? And now it's not just people don't use it. It's actually offensive to use that word. Do you see how subjective that is? How our society is just pushed because one person says, hey, you know that word? That's very, very offensive. So now we call them flight attendants. And if you call her a stewardess, how dare you? What? what that phrase mentally retarded literally is an accurate medical description of what is happening something in his brain has been retarded it has not come to full growth and potential But now that is very rude to say. Because, I don't know, some people started using it as a a way to tease other kids or something. And I get it. That's fine. We can use those terms. We can avoid those terms. That is definitely not a hill to die on. Please, Christians, please. It's not a hill to die on. But my point is, the world is always shifting. The world is always changing. It is so subjective. And if one person who has some influence says we are no longer to do that, then pretty soon we are no longer to do that. And if you do, simply because you use a different word or refuse to put a sign in your restaurant window with the words they want, then all of a sudden your life savings are gone and you're living on the streets because people burn down your restaurant. Our culture is constantly changing. I think it is very important because of the, the sin involved to not be racist. But even what the victims of racism define as racism today was very different than what I grew up with. If I avoided racism the way the victims of racism told me to when I was growing up, if I did that today, I would be called racist. To not see color is how I was raised to end racism. Now, if you don't acknowledge someone's culture and color, you're racist. So even in very important things like ending racism, shifting constantly, changing. And so do you really want to have an anchor that holds you there for a little bit? But then later on, you're moving because you found out you're not anchored to a rock. It's just like a a giant blue whale that was sleeping, and now it's going to take you wherever it wants to go. Or do you want to be anchored on the rock? What was in vogue yesterday is outdated today. There's always something new. There's always something fresh. And ultimately, these things are like the surf of the sea driven by the wind. They're constantly moving. But we don't have to be. Despite what's going on in the water, despite what's going on over the water, if you look deeper, if you go deep enough to the depths of the ocean, there is always a bedrock that is immovable and unperturbed by the waters and the winds above, untouched by the winds that blow. And that, my friends, is God, and that is what we must put our anchor upon. And when you do, you will be stable in faith, and your request for wisdom will be granted. And if not, it won't. Which James explains in the next verse, in our next point, the third factor in God's rejection of the request for wisdom, the frustrating consequence. The frustrating consequence. Look at verse 7. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. We are reminded here of how important our heart is to the Lord. As believers who know what the Lord desires and that He wants us to be fully committed to Him, it should come as no surprise at all that He will not give us what we ask if we are not asking in faith. Remember, the doubting also refers to a misguided desire for selfish or worldly things. And this principle is found elsewhere in the New Testament. We are familiar if not by the, the actual reference number, we are familiar with John's fifth, John 15, 7. And sometimes, practically speaking, we only live out the second part, which says, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. We love that part. Ask whatever you want, Christian, and it will be done for you. The whole verse, however, says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, then ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you because if you abide in Him and His words abide in you, you will only ask for things that He desires. Although within the context of the love of money, Matthew 6.24 lays out the same principle, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. You can put anything there for wealth, 1 John is very clear about the love of the world means hatred of God. Love of the world is a hatred of the brethren. You cannot love the world and love God. Turn a few pages to James chapter 4, verses 3 through 10. James 4, 3 through 10, and we'll get there. But for now, it really lends to what we're talking about. He says, You ask and do not receive. Because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the Scriptures speak to no purpose? Here he quotes the Scriptures. He jealously desires the Spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double minded. Keep note of that, that word, double minded. Verse 9, be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and He will exalt you. And that's so key, isn't it? We so long for the exaltation from the world. But we humble ourselves before God and He will exalt us in the best way possible. And our passage this morning is in regard to our request for wisdom. But James has broadened this to talk about our faith And prayers in general, and chapter four solidifies this for us. Look at what James says exactly in verse one, excuse me, verse seven of chapter one. The doubting man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. And when it comes to God answering your prayer specifically as it pertains to wisdom, you can gauge your heart to know whether the answer is coming or not. You know. You know if you're pursuing sinful things, worldly things. The wonderful thing about this, as I mentioned before we even got into our outline, is that you can pray for a heart that is not divided or doubting. If you are doubting God, you can pray, Lord, help me not doubt anymore. And again, we have to remember that God is for us. He's for us. He's not against us. He wants us to excel. He wants us to thrive spiritually. He wants to grant wisdom to those who have the right desire and will thus use the wisdom for godliness. And that really speaks to the reality of the rejection of the request, doesn't it? Why would God grant us the wisdom to pursue sinful and selfish things? And why would God grant us wisdom if we truly don't trust and respect Him? Imagine standing in the kitchen of your home and in the living room, you hear your child go up to your spouse and say, Mommy, you're my favorite. So I'm asking you, can I have a little candy before dinner? No, you may not. Little footsteps running to the kitchen. Daddy, you're my favorite. So I'm asking you, Can I have a little candy before dinner? God knows your heart. God knows where your allegiances lie. God knows who your favorite is in that moment. He knows if it's him or if it's yourself. Yourself, including things like the world, comfort, money, and the like. If you're not going to fall for it from a little kid, why would God? especially when so much more is at stake than a little sugar before dinner. Well, that's the essence of the conclusion of the passage where James further explains why God will reject the request for wisdom. Our fourth and final point is the failing character, the failing character. Four factors in God's rejection of the quest for wisdom, the fitting confidence, the fluctuating conviction, the frustrating consequence, and finally the failing character. Verse 8, why being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways? There are two descriptions here, double-minded and unstable in all his ways. First, double-minded. Literally, in the Greek, it means double sold like your soul. double sold This is the Christian who is divided between his faith in Christ and, again, the allures of the world. And although James 1.8 is the first time this word is used in all of Greek literature, the concept is found in Jewish theology. In Psalm 119 and verse 2, we see a blessing upon those who pursue God with their whole heart. Whereas in Psalm 12, the one with a double heart or divided heart is condemned. Deuteron- Deuteronomy 6.5, which you know well because it's later quoted by Jesus, tells us to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. All of it. And what this all refers to is someone who is fully, 100% committed to the Lord. And notice, it is not half-minded. It is double-minded. In other words, the person who is in danger of not having God answer his requests is not just the person who is 50-50, but even 99 God and 1% self. Anything less than total allegiance to God. This of course does not mean that you have to be a perfect Christian for God to answer any prayers. It means where does your heart lie? This doesn't even mean that you are fully committed to the things outside of God. Double-minded carries the notion of wavering or lacking faith. And again, remember, the original audience is suffering heavy persecution. So in the midst of that, think about this, immoral choices, ungodly choices to end the pain are far more tempting for them than anything we would probably face today how hard is it is to remain resolute for the lord when your life is at stake because of that commitment it seems today we waver simply because we don't want to spend the time to attend something or don't want to stop eating out or give up our travel budget double minded james goes on to describe this person as unstable literally unsettled or not at rest This simply refers to someone who is fickle, vacillating in everything, as James indicates with the phrase, in all his ways. The ramifications of a lack of faith does not just impact prayers for wisdom, it impacts everything. Everything. Unstable in all his ways. Think about the last time you had a debate in your mind about something you wanted to do for the Lord? And there was a debate. Who was voicing the other side of that debate? What was that something that was other than the Lord? I want to go and encourage them, but I'm so tired. Vacillating, unstable. Unstable. You know, I know I should go out and do that, but it makes me so nervous. Vacillating between God's desires and your own comfort. You know, I have the time and money to, to give, but I've so been wanting to go on that vacation. Fickle. Debating. Wavering. Friends, there's nothing new under the sun. Since the very creation of Adam, man has tried to serve two masters, Yahweh and Baal, God and money, Jesus and self. It cannot be done. What is it that's taking up any part of your heart? The other half, 20%, 1%? Christ likeness is doing everything possible to make God 100% of your life. All your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Do you have faith, or is your spiritual character failing? And when we have this kind of faith that we are able to have, it will grow. Because with this kind of faith, you will naturally desire more wisdom to excel still more. And when we ask, He will give. Four factors in God's rejection of the request for wisdom. The fitting confidence, ask and faith. The fluctuating conviction, don't doubt. The frustrating confidence, or the frustrating consequence, rather, not receiving the wisdom and the failing character being double-minded and unstable in all your ways. So if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives all to to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith, without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind, For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would be people who have this kind of faith, who are not doubting your character, but perhaps more importantly in this group, we are not wavering between what you desire and what honors you, and what we in our worldliness and sin and pride desire, and what is extolled in the world. Use us, Father, to that end, that we might be faithful, not doubting, not unstable, not double-minded or double-souled, fully committed to you. And whatever it is, Lord, that is in our hearts that we are clinging on to, that 1, five, twenty, fifty, ninety percent that is keeping us from complete allegiance to you. Even, Lord, if it is under the auspices and under the the name of Christianity, but in our heart of hearts, we know it's just self. May we recognize that and push that out, repent of it, and have complete faith in you, and in turn, ask with faith and request and receive the wisdom from you, to live in a way that honors you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's stand together as the choir leads us as we close.